0: The ARA acknowledges the traditional owners of the land where we have recorded this podcast, the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, and we pay our respects to the Elders past, present and recognise Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders as Australia's first traders who utilise a sophisticated network of trading paths that have facilitated the exchange of goods, knowledge and culture for millennia.
1: Hi, I'm Paul Zara, CEO of the Australian Retailers Association, and welcome to Season 4 of Retail Therapy, proudly brought to you by American Express. This season, we'll be focusing on tech and innovation within the retail sector. We'll be talking to retailers who are utilising new and transformative technologies to support their business, as well as deep dive into the stories of startups who are taking the lead on retail innovation. Joining me on Retail Therapy today is Brian Solis, a world renowned digital anthropologist and futurist. He also serves as the global innovation evangelist at Salesforce, focusing on thought leadership and research that explores digital transformation, innovation, disruption, and the customer experience. Brian has advised leading brands, celebrities, and startups, and his work is followed by over 700,000 people on social media. I'm delighted to be chatting with him today to talk all things digital and innovation with a particular focus on the retail industry. Brian, welcome. Oh, well, hello Paul. Hello everyone. It's it's an absolute privilege to be here with you all. Well, first of all, what's a global innovation evangelist? How did you become one? How do I become one more importantly? <laughs> Paul, I think we all could only wish we could have a career such as yours. For a global innovation evangelist,
2: that is a role that is uh, There's a great article in Forbes, if you look up that title and uh, my name, that explains sort of this really unique team that I'm on at Salesforce. It's part of a group of all-stars who create an all-star team, who are all former analysts, authors, speakers... Uh, And each of us in our own right bring to the table our expertise, if you will, but also the unmet aspirations of changing the world at the same time. So in my case, it's the future of innovation in every aspect at a global level, hence the title. But the context of how I got there, I've, I've been a principal analyst pretty much my whole career. I've also been a practitioner in terms of creating or pioneering a lot of the digital first work that's led into digital first businesses, digital first marketing service, commerce, I've helped advise over a thousand startups and helping them come to market since the 90s. Also helped with enterprise transformations as well and written eight books and continue to to explore opportunities, especially in this new world, uh, where we can help push businesses, but also thinking executive mindsets, up and coming employees to believe that they too can be leaders, that nothing has to be sacred, that we can challenge the status quo and that we can invent a new future Based on this new trajectory that we're on uh, as a result of all of that disruption
1: since 2020. Mm. Tell us a little bit more, Brian, about your career path. You've written eight books, as I understand it. You spent many years studying the effects of emerging technology on business and consumers. What fueled that curious nature in you? Probably because I wasn't good at anything else, to be (laughs) honest.
2: Uh (laughs) I doubt that. I I grew up in Southern California at a time where personal computing wasn't yet mainstream. So I'm going to date myself a little there. And I taught myself basic programming, went to school to learn Fortran and actually other languages, and thought that if I could move to Silicon Valley, That could be a dream come true. Uh, At the time, Silicon Valley was literally silicon. It was all hardware and it was just the dawn before the rise of web 1.0. And when I moved to Silicon Valley uh, in the mid nineties, I thought that the thing that was missing as web 1.0 started to come together was that personal computing was becoming a big thing at that time, but the consumerization of the internet, I believed was going to change everything and that you couldn't take that hardware-based mentality that Silicon Valley, even with personal computing that Silicon Valley was famous for, to change the world, to grow markets, to change businesses, to change the relationship between businesses and customers. And that's when digital anthropology really became a, of an area of passion for me. It didn't exist at the time. Understanding how technology was changing people, their behaviors, how they communicate. I felt like that was going to be the big opportunity to help Silicon Valley as a movement accelerate the adoption of technology, but also maybe accelerate the adoption of human-centered businesses rather than sort of think about at the time, things like call centers, things like the closest we got to mass personalization at that time was email and whether or not we could get dear first name right. The idea of using technology to humanize that engagement, that was what led to the passion, the, the curiosity, the understanding. And from that moment on, I had since worked with startups and then also executives at enterprise organizations to sort of transform their mindsets to see like, hey, you know, things like digital photography, things like amazon.com in 1994, all of those things that were online photo sharing becoming a thing in the late 90s, all of those things were going to further push markets in new directions. And I wanted to be the champion, not only of the voice of people, but also the champion of that next
1: generation business and that's actually still what drives me today i find that absolutely fascinating i guess the next question for me brian is that how i guess has that all all of that built up to the work you now do at Salesforce? I wish I could say that I
2: figured it all out, but my work at Salesforce is really aimed at helping do a couple of things. One is obviously we power businesses all around the world to enhance every aspect of their companies, whether that's service or commerce or marketing uh, and every function that connects all of those dots. We help them uh, organize their data and translate those datas, that data into insights so that we can help improve engagement in every one of those functions. But how it, it prepares for my role is you know, our our reps across the organization are, are more than capable in helping companies understand how to how to use our technology to change their business. I'm brought in to help companies and executives see what's not in the RFP, what's not in the remit, what's not on their roadmap or their horizon as a means of sort of opening the opportunity to see how we not just react, to all of this disruption, but how we can actually get in front of it, playing out customer behaviors and expectations, employee behaviors and expectations, and where we can innovate in delivering net new experiences that create value for people that didn't exist before. At the same time, partnering with them to sort of carve out the path between look what what where can we use technology to improve what exists make it better faster more efficient at scale more automated what have you save money increase profits but also what are the things that are happening now and played out over the next two, five, seven, 10 years where we need to explore let's just say shorter term minimal but eventually longer term gradual investments in being where that next zeitgeist is going to be. Because that zeitgeist, constant, like that's a continuous phenomenon that most businesses aren't ahead of. So for example, you know, we could look at we could look at technologies like augmented reality, virtual reality, metaverse, web3, we could look at SSI, we could look at at, at web3 wallets. All those things are going to hit eventually. Some now augmented reality had its best years in the last couple of years. But those killer apps come because businesses recognize an opportunity to meet unmet customer needs and then to exceed them to become the new standard in engagement or service or commerce. That's where my role At Salesforce keeps me on my toes is helping businesses see the future to start making those changes and investments today. So we don't have to have that e-commerce moment that many, many organizations are still trying to react to. And that goes back to, you know, the, the, the nineties
1: and early 2000s. Mm. You, you mentioned before about Forbes and an article in um, you, which you describe your role. I understand you're a regular contributor for Forbes and you've written numerous pieces on evolving consumer trends in retail. One of your recent articles that I read talked about how ethical action is driving customer purchase decisions and how customers have stopped buying from a company whose values don't align with theirs. How has this happened and how can companies think beyond just providing a great product or service? Oh, I love that setup, Paul. It, let me cite sh- a couple of bits from
2: research that we have. We, we run global studies. Uh, one is called the State of the Connected Customer. And that research is presented globally, but we can break it out in you know, Australia New Zealand, for example, where we found that 43% of customers have switched brands in the last year, specifically in Australia and New Zealand. 51% feel like sales and service and marketing departments don't connect with one another. You compare that to the global number which was 71 percent of customers shifted brands and you can play out that their experiences are going to be as important as your products and your services in fact in in that state of connected customer report 88 percent of customers said globally that experiences are important and that they're as important as what you do and what you sell so why is that important well, that signifies that there has been an empowerment in the last two and a half years, and that is the result of everybody becoming digital first, you know, living life off of these devices, uh, not just working from home, but also unlocking new skills, new literacy uh, aspects of, that allowed you to shop differently, allowed you to explore results differently, allow you to be influenced differently. Think about. The fact that in the last couple of years, in certain industries, TikTok has become a higher-performing search engine than Google itself. Mm. So that means that the the customer has become, in in many ways, conscious. They've become aware of their capabilities. They're aware of their power of choice. Aware of what's important to them. You know, March 2020. I mean, even though here in the United States we complain about masks and, and rules, I mean, no one really felt it like Australia, New Zealand, in in terms of of being locked down, uh, being in home for yes. such a prolonged period of time. And with that came sort of this control-alt-delete moment or uh, what my colleague Henry King and I defined in a, in a magazine called Techonomy, an apocalypse, moment, a moment where we actually as human beings rethought everything and you, and you had the time to do so. And it was a, it was a life-altering series of moments where un- uncertainty, anxiety, stress, All of these things just sort of compounded that made people wonder what it means to be alive. What's the meaning of life? What's important? How do I want to spend my time? Who do I want to spend my time with? What do I value? And it turns out that one of the net results out of that was that values became valuable again. And so many customers committed to then aligning with businesses and brands whose values also were in alignment with theirs. Mm. And that 61% of consumers started to not do business with companies whose values weren't in alignment with theirs. And that means that companies have to be more introspective in terms of, well, what are the values that we state are important, but actually how are we backing that up? How are we treating our employees? What's our role, what's the role that we play in society? Uh, And and last but, but not least, the number one thing that customers said that they wanted to see from businesses, well, number one and number two, was that they wanted to see that businesses became more trustworthy Uh, you think about this era of uncertainty also this era of just disinformation and divisiveness that as a divided world in terms of just everyday day-to-day engagement added to that emotional uncertainty being able to trust somebody or something is is paramount and having companies deliver those consistent Engagements, understand who they're doing business with in terms of making engagement personal, not just personalized as, as, a, as a buzzword. Those are the aspects of which build or take away trust. And the number two thing was you know, they wanted to align with the role that you play in society. So you could see that this conscious consumer is setting the stage for a next level disruption for those companies that don't really become customer-centered. And, and, I, and I don't mean that as sort of like a mantra, I mean that as like truly customer-centered data culture, reimagining operations around that data, uh, creating cross-functional bridges technologically and operationally to execute against those data and insights in real time like that. I think what we're talking about is the, the need to upgrade business for this digital first era rather than to adapt these industrial
1: era models for this new time. When you think, Brian, of this new consumer being more purpose-driven and wanting their values aligned, do you believe it's generational or do you think it's a movement? Look, certainly generations who are hyper-connected in in a
2: lot of these networks, whether it's TikTok, Instagram, Snapchat, that literally change their behaviors and expose them to so much, so much faster. Absolutely, it's generational. But I don't want to take away from the reality that people are changing as a result of that consciousness, yes. regardless of age. So I called it. I wrote a series. Uh, I think it was in Forbes actually, uh, called Generation Novel, and it, it introduced this this concept that if you looked at digital first customers, how they made decisions, how they were made aware of information, how they shopped where they went to get information, how they were influenced, how they in turn influence others. Turns out that it's not an age thing. It's whether you're 18, 25, 35, 55, you go through the journey similarly, simply because of the way that technology changes your behaviors. Yes, And all true innovation is a result of behavior change. So that's the way I think about it, is that Generation Novel was inspired by that digital first Craziness that happened with becoming digital, but also becoming conscious uh, in the last two and a half years, and I don't think anybody's going to go backwards. I think this is only going to become compounded. We found that in our research that people are going to only spend more time online than they did before, even though the world is opening up. Yes. And it's simply because with connectedness comes great power, and that has that has every opportunity to give businesses the chance to earn loyalty and to practice retention, or to give it up or someone else who's willing to do those
1: things. I find that absolutely fascinating. You mentioned COVID and the impact that has had on the consumer. One of the upsides of COVID was it did accelerate a bunch of trends in the digital and yeah. innovation space. And businesses that weren't set up as omnichannel businesses, for example, were essentially forced to when we all had to stay at home. What does the future of retail look like to you now in terms of delivering a great in-store and online shopping environment? Well, I'd like to I'd like to get down to basics.
2: I'd also, you know, Paul, I'd love to hear your experience. I mean, certainly you've led digital transformations and these last two, two to three years have been really interesting in that every company had to accelerate their digital transformation. Every company had to explore not just omni-channel, but independent channels. Where are we not reaching the customer? And then thinking omni, like, where can we, where do we need to be and how do we integrate those? those channels together to create you know, a single a single journey. And I think what happened, and I say this loosely, of course, is that companies got so, so focused on digital so fast that we essentially create, we we essentially enabled journeys. And now companies are looking at we did that, we did that pretty quickly. We had 10 year roadmaps that we were able to execute within months in some cases. Now what else can we do? AI, automation, machine learning, you know, could we increase, increase these efficiencies at scale? But I I th- also see an opportunity that may be overlooked to not just make things, not just hit switches to make them active, to engage people through digital in ways that are as warm or better than what we might be able to experience in the real world. So I, I, I don't want, I don't want digital to facilitate transactions, I want digital to Contribute to customer engagement, engagement that define experiences that people love, and experiences that add up into relationships that make people or help people become more loyal, become advocates. Whatever, whatever business attributes you want to tie to it, whether it's you know lifetime value, whether it's share of wallet, whatever, what, what, yeah. whatever you want to put on there. Those are outcomes. Of all of the good things that we could use for digital. And I call that digital warmth. It's this uh, idea that digital is becoming its own love language, that people move faster when they're online. People are distracted when they're online. Yes. People are self interested and, in some cases, self centered. I I call us today uh, lovingly accidental narcissists and that digital has sort of made everything revolve around us so what can we do when we have someone's attention to use digital regardless of the channel to remind them that they're important to show that we know them to use technology to deliver not just the next best action but the next best experience for them because then once we build that infrastructure it's data it's ai it's cross-functional teams it's reimagining the the journey not as a series of touch points but as actually a journey like a storyboard that you might think of with your favorite disney movie that then that storyboard makes retail itself proper retail part of that channel so not just visual merchandising for example is connected merchandising how do we think about the store as part of that experience how do we embed mobile app geofencing beacons uh, augmented virtual reality you name it how do we game design How do we bring these elements into the store that don't just make browsing on racks or shelves part of the journey, but actually making the store itself a touch point that becomes media, that becomes activated, that becomes immersive, that complements the other aspects of the journey that make people want to go into the store beyond just the need to transact or to browse. So I I see it as as this, this integrated aspect of which then we can start to create retail as an experience and ultimately as a service where we're taking all of those insights and applying them in real time to enhance uh, what people, where people go in the store, what people find that's just for them, that they can all have their bespoke, augmented experience. Like these are the aspects of the stores that are relatable to you or most personal for you. And maybe even you integrating CRM uh, at the associate level, to you know, personalize that greeting, know a little bit about their history, and give everybody that that VIP service that everybody's begged for over the years. But instead of being creepy like Minority Report, <laughs> yes. it's much more it's much more like a Four Seasons experience where people just know you and are, are
1: welcoming you back home. Yeah, it's a, it's a, look it, it, the future is quite exciting when you hear when I hear you speak and talk about how many how much opportunity is still remaining, and of course. My background in a former life was actually running a department store, and uh, which has been really <laughs> structurally challenged. And I guess um, the, the the advice I've been giving retailers consistently is to to reduce their physical footprints and invest heavily in digital. Now, in saying that, most shopping is still done in a store, but we need to to recognise that there's this is this significant change that's happening, and it's 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 a journey; it's not a destination that, um, you know, retailers have to continually transform themselves digitally and um, that whole idea of digital uh, which is a word I hate actually but it's a combination of physical and digital (laughs) I I think because I phonetically find it (laughs) hard to to, to say but um, it's sort of it's this constant sort of melding I I think those most successful retailers are the omnichannel retailers that can be in each channel and do it really really well in a seamless way you know I think that's the whole point and I think that's what you're talking about is the is the opportunities that still exist and I, I my next question to you I guess is there do you think there's a growing disconnect with how older and younger customers are viewing the role of physical retail? I mean, you've written about how older customers are more traditional, visiting stores to touch and feel merchandise. And I think they also look to get products immediately and use use discounts in store. While younger customers are seeking experiences, enjoyment, more social aspects on social media and be part of events. What, What does success look like in delivering the best of both worlds? Paul, of everyone, you could appreciate this, is
2: that executives aren't their customers. And in in many cases, customers aren't ultimately their first line of stakeholder. So meaning that even though the numbers are important to an executive or any decision maker, many times it's the board, it could be shareholders, it could be spreadsheets, (laughs) In terms of what, what we're beholden to. So it, it creates an us versus them or a removed perspective. The way that I'd like to think of things is understanding what's important to people, whether it's online or whether it's in person. And I'll look at that through a lens that's greater than retail. I'll look at anything. That delivers an incredible experience that people love. If you go back to the 1960s. Consistently, one of those things has been Disneyland or Disney World. I look at Apple, you know, considering that they changed the nature of physical retailing. What was it, 2004, with their Apple Store? I mean, it's a long time ago, and it still seems so new. Uh, I look at Tesla. I look at I look at TikTok. I look at Tinder. I look at anything that's changing the game for their respective industries. And with that changing behaviors and with that changing norms and with that changing expectations, I try to distill why at a human and emotional level, those things are really important to people. And I compare that to the existing digital experience. I, too, dislike that word. Uh, but I try to go with I try to make yeah. DiFi popular, by the way, uh, which <laughs> what is that digital for? physical? Oh, OK, uh, <laughs> fair enough. <laughs> but but that didn't that didn't that didn't make it. Um, but. Uh, It was this aspect then of seeing if the store becomes media, if everything becomes a touch point, and we take that word literally like touch, like how do we touch the customer in any given moment? What can we use to borrow from all these other magical experiences to bring something to life? You know, theme park design, Disney, Disney, the Imagineers, it's a lot to learn from them storyboarding there's a lot to learn from that to bring this to life before we even get to things like augmented reality or virtual reality and the way that that changes the nature of the conversation is essentially we're just we're trying to actually codify magic and then take that codification and and use technology or use design or use processes or use training use people to bring that magic to life uh, in all of its regards. And I call it an experience style guide. It's not anything that's sort of popular in practice, but it was it was a derivative of a book I wrote called X, The Experience When Business Meets Design. And I realized like, wow, all of, all of these really cool companies are using technology in ways that are actually meant to deliver an experience that I think is premeditated. And we all have brand style guides, but we all have training manuals. Yes. But what if we had an experience style guide that, communicated or articulated or outlined what someone is supposed to feel when they recall the brand and how that experience is defined through each of the engagements. And then how could we look at things like journey maps or store design or or online uh, transformation to bring that experience to life? I think that that's the next frontier. And so that would be the thing that I think about is that going back to your original question, you don't have to be 25 or 65 to appreciate a great experience it's it's the disney proposition you see people of all age groups all all groups enjoying it equal except for the long lines of course but they go for the other magic magical reasons that i think we could
1: borrow from
2: and bring retail back to life rather than just being something for shopping
1: yeah, no, You make a really, really good point. I'm hoping that re- resonates really well with our listeners. With more of us purchasing the things we need online with a few taps of our fingers, it does mean that we're more impatient than ever before. It's so easy now to shop on another site if you don't have a good experience with a particular retailer's online platform. Now, Salesforce research shows that 80% of shoppers say that will, they will abandon a retailer after just three bad experiences. I guess what kind of situations are likely to turn customers away and how can retailers fix them? There's two paths that I want to break out here. One is iteration uh, and one is innovation. And
2: I have to be honest, and and maybe you've seen this too, Paul, is that a lot of times when we look at all of this really cool technology that's in front of us, any any way that we use it, it looks like innovation because it's new to us. So let's take chatbots, for instance. It's pretty cool technology. Yes. But yet we use it in a very iterative way, sort of provide self service to, uh, in many cases, oftentimes implement, implementations are reflective of an IVR strategy. So, like a decision tree, uh, this uh, rather than something that's new. Uh, and the way that I break it down is iteration is uh, doing, using technology, for example, to do the same thing that we did yesterday better tomorrow. At scale, faster, more efficient, et cetera. Innovation is creating that new value. Uh, and both are important. So back to your your question, I think about the iteration and the innovation approach to to that transformation. I think that our research showed that customers are incredibly gracious to give, companies three chances. I certainly know many customers who wouldn't wouldn't give that many, especially now as they're more empowered and more connected Mm -hmm. and more informed. Every customer has the reason for striking out a company. The experience isn't great. You don't know me. There's no integration between key areas of the customer journey. Even in one area of importance, like service, there's no integration in service. So oftentimes people feel like they have to repeat themselves or new state of the service report that came out really documents how important service itself is in becoming critical to the overall customer journey. Uh, and we can talk about that later in terms of how service is creating a role for discovery, which is a bookend to the customer journey. But there, there are many reasons why someone will give up. And I don't know that companies are actually doing their part to explore from the customer's perspective what those drivers are and what they can do to improve those through iteration. And what are some of the ways that they can attract new customers that wouldn't consider doing business with them through innovation? Because it's new, it's exciting, it's more intuitive, it's culturally relevant, all of these these wonderful things. So I would would say that, you know, for example, we found that 71% of customers lose trust when there are inconsistencies across multiple touch points. And even though we might say omni-channel, when something breaks down at that level, and you have to start over or you have to switch devices, people don't have to do that in some of the best-in-class experiences that they have. Everything is so intuitive and native and easy uh, and personal yes. that you're competing against those best-in-class experiences, even if they're outside of retail. So that's that's why, you know, earlier when we talked about executives not, not being their customers, bringing that voice of the Customer, the voice of the detractor, hire to appreciate where there can be areas of investment for iteration and innovation tied to real ROI and business value, is only going to help companies not lose customers, attract more customers, and grow in all of the right ways. Uh, especially at a time where retail, I think isn't just vulnerable. This is its control-alt-delete moment. It could actually be greater than it ever was.
1: We we spoke a little bit about digital, and I guess the way we live and work has transformed that hybrid digital physical model is the new normal. But what's concerning, I guess, for me, is the research around the growing skills divide and that 76% of workers don't feel prepared to work in a digital first world. How, How do you think employers can address that disconnect and prevent some of their own people from being left behind? Well, in many ways... What
2: we're, we're talking about is the very essence of a company, whether it's retail or whether it's employee experience. These models are 40, 50, 60 years old or more. Hmm. And now we're in a retail era, our digital first era of retail and a digital first era for everything. So how we think about those constructs, in many ways, are hierarchical. They were designed to be solid because they were much more efficient in an industrial era to operate that way. But now at the speed of the way that markets are evolving and behaviors are changing, and we're trying to sort of adapt these old models or legacy models into this new world, and it's it's incredibly difficult. Almost every aspect of our business could be reimagined. I mean, certainly, if you were going to start a new company, you wouldn't go to the 1960s for inspiration on how to structure a company. You would probably invent it as you go or look at some of your idols uh, that you could model after and then iterate from there. So why this is important is that the digital first employee probably has better technology, but also new behaviors that when they go to work, hold them back based on what they're provided with and how they have to operate. I did research of a few years ago. This is before COVID that explored this the rise of what was called at the time. This this was actually five years ago, so it was pretty prescient. Uh, the anywhere worker and how there was going to be not. I've written my whole career about how digital first was going to change customers and markets, but never had I really looked specifically how it was going to change work at the employee level. And what we had found was that. People do feel like if they had to use their own personal technologies, that they could, they could truly work from anywhere and that the things were ho- that were holding them back were actually infrastructure, process, management. And one of the most interesting things that had come up in that research was that talented prospects were often not looking at companies who had desktop phones so pervasive in the office which no one, no one expected to see that. But it made sense when we found that data point. And it was because employee prospects felt like those phones visualized for them the culture of the company uh, and what it would be like to work there. Or another aspect that had come up, this was through a digital transformation process, was if an employee couldn't apply on an open rack using their mobile device, uh, that it it told them, it signaled that the company wasn't was was uh, wasn't going to work at their pace or speed <laughs> or ideal. So it's like the most basic things mm. that we overlook in, in in everyday work that is telling us that people need experience as part of their everyday, not just work, but to keep their morale up, to, to, to help them feel like they're making impact and to allow them to work their way to help us achieve our goals collectively so the future of work has to come down then to not only giving people these digital skills but also helping them to believe that they play a part in the future of business because no one likes change for the sake of change but they would like to be better if they know that it's going to be good for them and be good for the organization and that there's some value uh, in making those transformations and that they're not just gaining these skill sets or this new expertise because that's what what the job demands. It's because they can see firsthand how it's going to help them be more useful and more valuable to
1: the organization. Absolutely fascinating. Uh, My my final question, Brian, um, we've covered a lot of ground. I I guess the final question is really around customer retention because it is an important focus for retailers. Most of us know that it's six to seven times more expensive to acquire new customers than to keep them. How is customer loyalty being reimagined? And I guess, do you agree that organizations can't rely on traditional loyalty programs like they used to? Well, let's start with the latter part. No, companies cannot rely on traditional loyalty
2: programs to drive loyalty. Uh, When you have 71% of companies who are customers who are, are switching brands for a myriad of reasons, that shows that loyalty is up for grabs. And when we see whether or not programs are able to deal with those emotions, you, you realize that it's it's the basics that are going to push someone away. I think it was uh, in our in our state of the connected customer. This is specific for Australia and New Zealand. That seventy nine percent of customers said that they would be more loyal to a company if their experiences, their interactions were organized or integrated, or that they were consistent. That's pretty basic. Of course, you should have a good, seamless, connected experience. So you can only do better from there. No amount of points or rewards are going to transform how someone feels in moments of frustration uh, when they can have a better experience where someone is actually putting their experience front and center. So let's start with that. What is the experience that someone has in each moment? of your of your company's engagement in critical moments and how does that add up to the ultimate experience that people will have not what we say you're going to have but what people have and is there an alignment between what people experience and what we promised them that they should experience and you know paul one of the things that i found is that people ha- companies might have a vision or a mission hmm. or a purpose or a brand statement but oftentimes they haven't defined that that experience you know that that's that's pretty powerful so that that becomes one mechanism for loyalty the other is to actually start to look at what customers value and integrate that into your loyalty program and communicate that into into your communications so that people feel like they're heard uh, and that you're delivering things that they that they value, like I I, I have a list. I've been taking notes of a lot of different innovations in loyalty programs besides tiering and VIP leveling and spend requirements. That hyper personalization through quizzes and data use that deliver bespoke dynamic loyalty programs is 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 hugely successful in tests. Looking at nurturing the emotionality of engagement. Because uh, one of the things that we found in our, in our state of the connected customer research is that, I think it was fourth on the list, or no, third on the list, is that people wanted to feel an emotional connection to the brands that they buy most from. So that nurturing, that type of engagement beyond offers and sales, you know, how are you nurturing at a personal level that relationship? Uh, things like exclusivity, People want to feel that a loyalty program gives them access, not just rewards, that they have access to new things, different things, uh, and that can be tiered. Uh, I, I have a list of 12 things that I've been documenting that we could talk about later. But, but the last thing that I'd at least like to share is that people are also willing to work for greater access or greater uh, rewards. And that could be from using the app more, so gamifying it to uh and making it gamifiable so that it's usable not just beyond you know beyond transactions they're willing to uh write reviews because people's time is valuable as a as a form of earning more rewards that they're they're willing to spread uh information on social media as a as a form of rewards because everybody's an influencer now so there's a million ways to reimagine the loyalty program but it starts by getting down to the basics of what does what does generation novel value What's important to them and what are the experiences
1: that they want to have but how can a loyalty program reflect those things where the outcome is loyalty fascinating brian look we'll take you up on that we might have to have you back for a next session just to specifically talk about loyalty because it's such a fascinating topic thank you so much for joining us on retail therapy thank you for your insights and i look forward to catching up with you when you're back in australia oh paul thank you I, i i'm gonna hold you to it Joining me for a quick chat is Simon Holloway, co-owner and head of community at VeggiePod. VeggiePod create portable, durable and self-watering raised garden beds, which take all the guesswork out of growing your own veggies. VeggiePod was founded by Matt Harris in 2009 when he failed to grow his own veggies and realised there must be other people having the same problem. The raised edible garden bed business really started to take off when yourself and Matt's brother Paul joined a couple of years later and the original design was reinvented. As a now well-established business, how do you continue to innovate and respond to customer feedback?
0: Yeah, well, um, we're very blessed to be able to uh, be in contact with our customers all the time. Um, in Australia alone, we do an average of six shows a month we're glorified carnies in a way we uh we're out abouts from you know the really big shows the sydney royal easters right down to the little ag shows and vegan festivals and smart water product shows you name it but the, the main point there being we are constantly talking to our customers constantly receiving feedback and uh it's it's a wonderful thing it gives us ideas uh it lets us know where we need to improve things and uh i, I wouldn't swap that for anything in the world we need that direct contact
1: VeggiePod have experienced huge growth in recent years and are now available in around 20 countries. What strategies have you used, including your partnership with American Express, to achieve that level of success?
0: Yeah, look, we've uh, always asked for help. It's an old common one, isn't it? But when whenever we've grown, we've always looked to other people who have succeeded before us. Uh, I always say to people, don't be afraid to ask for help. Human beings generally like to help other human beings. And, um, you know, it doesn't matter how big or how small they are or how big their persona is or not. If you ask people, you'll be surprised how many times uh, they will come back to you with help. So we've constantly asked for help. We've, and that doesn't just be to other entrepreneurs and other business people, but people within government, people within um, you know the accountancy and the finance spheres. And indeed, you know, that included Amex. You know, when we needed to get out to further customers and and uh, know how our customers spent their money on facilities, uh, they helped us. So, uh, yeah, just get out there and ask anybody and everybody for help, basically.
1: Simon, you've been an American Express shop small merchant for a while and recently took part in a masterclass to share your knowledge with other small businesses. Can you tell us why that's important to you? Is knowledge sharing part of Vegipod's ethos?
0: Yeah, well, how could I put that former answer uh, across without then giving back? Um, of course, it's it's one big sphere of information. If you get yourself involved in giving information, I can assure you, you are always going to be learning something as well as you uh, as you impart your knowledge. So, uh, if I ever get asked to give uh, some help or, or some information, I, I find that as a privilege. And I know that generally, you know, given Thou Shalt Receive, as long as it's not contrived, uh, one will receive stuff back.
1: Thanks for listening to this episode of Retail Therapy, brought to you by our seasoned partner, American Express. If you enjoyed this episode, make sure you give the show a follow on your favourite podcast app so you don't miss an episode. If you're a new listener, you can find our back catalogue of episodes on our website. We've covered leadership, small business and sustainability. For more information about the work we do at the Australian Retailers Association, head to our website, retail.org.au. You can follow us on LinkedIn, Twitter, Instagram or Facebook, wherever you love to connect. All of the links can be found in the show notes.